The CBF Podcast Conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theological education. Learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners with online classes and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next step in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. 2020 is off to a great start for the CBF podcast with guests like Father Thomas Reese, Soong Chang Ra, and Casey Van Norman. We also have a lot of exciting episodes ahead, including interviews with Eugene Cho, Sarah Bessie, and our week in D.C. at Advocacy in Action. Don't forget that you can be a part of supporting the podcast while receiving some great benefits, such as joining an interview with an upcoming guest, books from authors interviewed, and a VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly. We want to thank William Johnson and Cindy Folendor for their monthly support of the podcast. Check out how you can support at cbf.net backslash podcast support. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's CBF Podcast Conversation is W. David O. Taylor. David is the Associate Professor of Theology and Culture at Fuller Theological Seminary, as well as the Director of the Brem, Texas. Uh, David is the author of a new book, Open and Afraid, along with contributing to the Washington Post, Christianity Today, and Theology Today. David, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Now, uh, before we get into the book and your work, uh, let's get to know you a little better. Uh, um, it says you're you're raised in Guatemala City, but uh, kind of taking a look at you, you you don't look like you're from uh, Central <laughs> South America. No, no, my parents were missionaries there, so I was born and raised along with my two sisters, and I left. Well, we left in '85. I was 13 years old at the time. Um, so, you know, first 13 years of my life there in Guatemala city, and it was a very wonderful, rich uh, experience of life. My parents actually put us into an Austrian school. And so it was English at home, Spanish with friends and German at school. So from a very early age, we were exposed to this global community and that, you know, has left an impression on us to this day. 
I can imagine. Um, I I will say that I, I was holding back from dumb and dumber jokes about Austria versus Australia. Um, <laughs> so I, you know, I imagine for you, I mean, as a as a missionary kid, you're not you didn't really have a choice in the matter. Um, you know, but certainly seeing the work you've done since then uh, is very uh, gospel kingdom centric. So, you know, mm-hmm. what do you think the biggest impact? Um, experiencing that very early on in your life uh, has has had on you today uh, of being a missionary kid yeah yeah is that what you mean yeah or or, or more importantly uh, going to school with a bunch of austrians <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> well i mean I, I think probably that the the two things uh that resulted from that life experience early childhood experience are in a sense two sides of the same coin on the one side it helped me feel like at a very sort of keen, um, kind of deeply felt way that I'm part of this global community, a global citizen. And that while I was happily American, um, I was not only American. I had quite literally two, two citizenships. I had two passports, still do. And, uh, and then that inspired me once I reached my high school and college years to pursue the foreign service. And so that's what I studied in, in, in college. I took the foreign service exam, went pretty far down the line, interned at the Chilean embassy in, in Washington, D.C., was really set up to go in that direction. And I had a, a personal crisis, spiritual crisis that, that sort of derailed me and sent me off to seminary. But I still carry with me this sense of belonging to this global community. And I write about that in the book on the chapter on, on the Psalms of the Nations. But the other side of the coin was from very early age, I did feel that I was part of the global church. Like that was a very normal, natural thing for us to think for our lives in terms of our identity, that we're part of, you know, the the, the community of God in, in North America, but also the people of God in Latin America and around the world. And my father worked in global missions, so we were always being introduced to uh, brothers and sisters in Christ from every continent. And again, when that is your quote-unquote normal experience of life. It's hard to shake it, and obviously I don't wish to shake it. And so I, I think I'm always asking myself, how does the global church think and feel about XYZ? And certainly with this pandemic, we are feeling sort of this absorbed, uh, self-absorbed and absorbed, being absorbed into this all-consuming experience with the pandemic. And it's tempting, perhaps, to think we're the only ones, um, but we're not. And so I, I think my ears are always attuning to what the global church might be experiencing. And I feel like that does enrich me. Like that's a good thing for me personally. I think it's like really good for me as a Christian, really good for me as as a teacher and as a theologian to have that frame of mind to say God has um, met us in our own particularity here across our country and obviously within all the different sub-communities in this country. But God is at work wonderfully and, and marvelously around the world. And so we get to be attuned and to be knitted to that community. And it might rescue us from things that we need to be rescued. And I tell my students, one of the things that might rescue us is ways that we may confuse the gospel 
with our own local culture. So I guess I would say those are the two things, two sides of the same coin. As I mentioned in the introduction, um, you know, um, in addition to teaching uh, theology and culture, you're also the director of um, Brem Texas. Um, it, it's a spiritual nurturing community that guides and resources Christian leaders to engage culture, exploring their calling and create uh, creatively uh, integrating worship and theology and arts. Uh, tell us more about the center, how it was founded and, and how you got involved with it. Yes. Well, I should probably stay, state up front that the Brim Center is this collective of initiatives. And so there's actually a person, not myself, her name is Shannon Sigler. She is the director of the entire Brem Center, and I'm the director of an initiative within the Brem Center. So there are initiatives with respect to film and, and, and television, with respect to preaching and worship, uh, the visual arts, uh, other sorts of initiatives. My initiative is focused on the renewal of the church through the arts. And so I get to be a part of this larger collective of initiatives at Fuller Seminary. It's a wonderful venture. But I've long felt, going back to my years in seminary and, and those years that involve church internships and then being a pastor for 10 years, that my clear calling was to serve the local congregation. Not that I don't care about what happens in the in the public square or the marketplace. I do very much so, but I feel like my primary calling is to the church, to the local congregation, and to serve church leaders, worship leaders, pastors, lay leaders, lay people, uh, with respect to the arts. And so in that capacity, I've hosted a, a handful of conferences. I've provided consulting to churches on on the arts i've done gatherings with artists i've done retreats with those who feel called to shepherd artists and then certainly one of the projects i did was to bring bono and eugene peterson together for this conversation on the psalms that then led to the book yeah so uh how were you introduced to to this opportunity and and then obviously stepped into it well, I have to say it was very unusual, and it's never happened again. <laughs> so this is October of 2000, 2014, October 14th. I had a dream. I have a somewhat active dream life, but in this dream, I experienced something I've never experienced before, which was I was dreaming about sitting across from Eugene Peterson and Bono. And I woke up, and I thought that was the funnest dream ever. <laughs> and I've never been a diehard YouTube fan, although I have had a tremendous amount of respect and have enjoyed their music. And certainly the, the Joshua Tree album in the 80s was one of the first albums or tape, cassette tapes that I owned and loved listening to it over and over. But I, I'm, not, I'm not a diehard fan. And so it was odd to find him in my dream. And at breakfast, I told my wife, I was like, check it out. This dream was amazing. And would it be fun if it really happened? She's like, sure, go for it. <laughs> and so it originally started as this idea for a, a one-day conference on the Psalms. And it would involve all kinds of plenary presentations and workshops to, to, to provide resources and, and um, inspire uh, folks to jump into the Psalms and to embrace them as Christians for 2,000 years have. And then the marquee event would be this conversation. I thought, well, that'd be really, really fun. And I knew, I, I'd read somewhere that, that Bono had had a, a, a great respect and affection for Eugene Peterson. 
So I thought, there's a chance. Well, two days later, I found myself at a retreat, uh, a retreat center called the Laity Lodge, which is in central Texas. And at the retreat was Eugene Peterson himself, as well as uh, a musician named Charlie Peacock. He's been very influential in the Christian music scene in Nashville since the 80s. And I remembered that he had hosted Bono in his home in the early 2000s with a group of influential musicians to talk about debt relief in Africa. So I thought, well, I can ask Charlie what the chances are. Charlie said, 50%. (laughs) I said, I can work with 50%. So I asked Eugene, hey, would you be up to this? He said, yes, as long as you do the legwork. I said, fine. And then I faced this this juggernaut of handlers (laughs) that stand between me and Bono himself. There's a whole industry of folks who take care of that band. Long story short, I found one date that both he and Eugene could do. So I called Eugene. I said, hey, could you do it? He said, gosh, I'm so sorry. I can't. My son's having surgery and I need to be with him. I thought, well, we gave it a try. (laughs) And uh, we gave it an honest college try and that's it. You know, what else can we do? Well, a few days later, a friend of mine said, well, what if you reconceived it as a filmed conversation? So that's what we did. And uh, so I called Bono's people and I called Eugene. So we found one date, just three hours because U2 was in the middle of rehearsals for one of their tours. And so he flew down from Vancouver where they'd been rehearsing. And I flew up to Lakeside, Montana, where the Petersons lived. And we sat down for an hour on camera. And um, that's, that's how the whole thing took off. Well, it, it, it turns into this, uh, the short film entitled the Psalms and, um, you know, the, the thought of, of meeting either of these brilliant men individually, let alone together just pushes me over the top of <laughs> the squeals of Elvis groupies. And I do have to say that I, I have been hovering above the zoom administrative controls out of fear that somebody's going to zoom bomb us. And I almost was at the point of muting you and you were like, I was never really, and I'm not really that big of a fan of you two. It's like, that is my <laughs> band. That's my lifelong band. The Joshua oh, three is the single greatest album of all time, you know? Um, so, you know, obviously you had to do the legwork of pulling this together, but tell us what this experience was like for you, um, you know, living into it. Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, it was a pinch me. Uh, is this really happening experience for me? I, I don't hang out with, <laughs> with the, you know, the, the, the fast and the furious and the famous and the beautiful and whatever else, you know, you want to call them. I don't, it's just not my cup of tea. Um, but it was one of those that every step of the way I felt called to do it. Like I felt like a little grace to do it, that something really good could come from it. And trust me when I say, there are all kinds of obstacles and frustrating experiences and moments where I thought, that's it. I just, I can't give one more hour to this. I'm giving up. But then just a little, you know, cup of grace found itself in my hands. I thought, okay, well, we'll just keep, keep doing it because I really felt convicted. I, I think this needs to happen. I don't know what will come from it, but I hope something good comes from it. So then I find myself, you know, there in Lakeside, Montana, and, and we, my wife and I arrived date early to sit down with Jan Eugene just to check in. They're just the dearest people. And they're unassuming, they're gentle, they're down to earth, they're very attentive. They're really everything you would want them to be um, if you sort of had a sense of them from a distance. Very kind, very hospitable, 
um, not fancy. Their home isn't fancy, um, but just very at home in themselves and therefore very at home with people in their homes. Now, Jan is a little bit more of a trickster. She's always, you know, telling little jokes and teasing people, which is hilarious <clears throat> because she was teasing Bono the whole time. Um, and then Bono arrives with his two assistants and you do think to yourself, good Lord almighty, here he is <laughs> in all his, you know, shades glory. Um, and I could tell he was a little bit, uh, self-conscious, like, you know, he's coming into the home of somebody that he's admired for years. And, and that was very touching to me to see him have sort of, um, an innocence about it. Um, not a, you know, I, I, I hang out with presidents and prime ministers and, and Arabian princes around the world. So, you know, kiss my ring. He was very dear, very present as well. He came with a gift with the Petersons. He was, he was very interested in knowing everybody's name. So there's just a small film crew of five guys and he introduced himself to everybody by name. And when he left, he, he said goodbye to everyone by name. And that really caught my attention. Um, and he made sure that he would just sort of blend in with the room. And um, so it's kind of those moments where you think to yourself, that's going to stay with me longer than all the global tours, you know, and all the albums is the man himself. He's been married to his wife, Allie, for almost 40, well, 40 years, I think, this year. And in a world, you know, rock and roll, rock and roll world where marriages do get, you know, spit up chewed up and spit out spat out that's that's impressive and he's remained friends with these guys since he was a teenager when all of them had this extraordinary charismatic experience of god that still lingers in all of them even though you know some of them may not be you know fully sort of in the, in the middle of the christian faith i guess or or the church bono is very much so so I don't know, just the integrity of the man himself um, impressed me. I'll say one more thing. Three days later, I, I, after this whole thing was done in Montana, I landed in Houston. I was at the airport waiting for my luggage, opened up my phone. I saw I had an email from somebody whose name I did not recognize, PDH. And you being a YouTube fan, I'm, I'm sure you can guess what PDH means. Um, it's his actual name. And in the note, he says, hey, thanks so much. This is really wonderful. I didn't feel like I came fully prepared. I apologize. Could I make it up to you? And obviously, yes, I'm having this moment of saying, heck, yeah, you can. <laughs> but I'm also thinking that's really impressive uh, that in the middle of this, you know, just crazy business, busy time of preparation for this tour, he's thinking to himself, this little small fry project, he wants to do the people right. Long story short, I find the band in their tour in New York City when they land in New York City and arranged to meet Bono um, there. And so we met in a gallery. He had spent the morning, the entire morning, reading and praying and preparing the Psalms. He was just effusive in his excitement about the Psalms. And so we had a second series of conversations. Um, and that was very inspiring and encouraging to me. I'll just tell you one more story. Just sort of like the, the, all these people, these famous people that we read or see on television, just being with Eugene and Bonham, my own little small way, I'm reminded they're just people. 
And, and I know that's maybe a cliche to say, but it really is true. They're just people. And what's so delightful is that both Eugene and Bono, when they're with you in the room, they really are so content to be just people and not something else. So um, I went to an after party, which is super weird. My wife and I, like, again, this is not our world. So this is so out of our comfort zone. At the top of this hotel, penthouse, you know, room, the band's there, other like people, people are there. And they have a chaplain. So we gravitate towards the chaplain. So we've gotten to know a little bit and just like, just <laughs> protect us from all the, the, the shininess <laughs> that's happening in this room, all the you know, <clears throat> fame. Um, we'll just duck around here. So we have a nice conversation. Bono sees us, walks across the room and greets us very warmly. He asks Phaedra how her art making is coming along because she's an artist. I thought, that's very impressive. He remembered that that's one thing that he told, she told him. We had a lovely exchange. And at the end of it, in the middle of this super posh room of people, he says, can we pray? <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, no, I mean, that's like, super uncomfortable, weird. <laughs> but I, I think to myself, sure, why not? You want to pray? Let's pray. And so he puts his arms around our shoulders. So it's like a little, it just made me think of youth group, you know, little holy huddles, putting our arms around. And he prays the most lovely prayer for our lives, our work, our families, the world. And I thought, here's a man who has he really has this integrity. He has this clear sense of self and he's so truly at home in himself that he's able to truly be present to other people, whether he's on a stage or just kind of one-on-one. -on -one. That's a long story, I guess, to say people are people, but some people really are so wonderfully just themselves. And that's what my experience was with both Eugene and Bono. David, I hope you can feel the heat coming from my <laughs> burning jealousy that that Paul David Hewson, yes, EDH, uh, had, yeah, had personal contact with you. Um, so un unfortunately, we lost Eugene in 2018. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. probably hard to put into concise words. But what is what is his most indelible impact on your life and work? Well, you know, one thing he said in class when, when I was in seminary at Regent College, I, I don't know if I'm remembering this exactly, the exact phrasing, but it was something along the lines, if you come across a guru standing by the side of the road, you know, offering you his wares to tell you the truth of the universe, uh, I don't know if he said something like, you know, just run as fast as you can away from them or shoot them. I think shooting sounds like a pretty violent thing for Eugene to say. But, but it, it, his point was, don't become enamored with um, folks who present themselves as having, uh, you know, the impressive answers. Um, I don't know what, the kiss the ring, ring kind of auras about them. He's like, just, that's the worst thing you could, seek to aspire to become and it's the worst thing for you to look you know seek after and his advice to us was always the same to discover this large country of salvation in your own backyard uh in and and the normal ordinary unimpressive often you know uh tedious and tiresome 
world that you live, that, that the grace of God is there and is to be found there. And so I, he had this command of church history and literature and poetry and the original languages of scripture and theology that was just awe-inspiring. At the end of the day, he kept saying the same thing, which was the grace of God and the calling of God and the work of God is amidst the very normal, human, ordinary circumstances of your life. So, um, you know, don't become addicted or intoxicated by these allures, these glittering images or glamorous powers, to use the language of Susan Howitch's novels. Um, and that stayed with me um, uh, uh, because th it is a temptation. Certainly, you know, when you're a professor in a seminary and you're part of an academy and you're in this guild of theologians, you are tempted like any other profession, hopefully, I guess, is to feel tempted. I don't hope that they are, but I guess I think they are tempted to compare and compete and that stuff is just toxic to the soul. And, and so just hearing his voice in my head is helpful just to say, hang in there. I'll say two other things. His first book, uh, his first published book um, got published when he was 48. And I find great comfort in that because I am, let's see, I'm uh, nine days away from my 48th birthday. And, um, and not that I am him, but just sort of this, you know, sense that um, he wasn't young, bright, and beautiful when he made his mark in the world. He was 48 when he wrote his first book. And before that, he was doing pastoral work. So again, just... Just, I, I find a very comforting reminder that God's timing in our, in our lives doesn't always work out in the ways that we imagine or that maybe our culture around us is saying, by X date, you need to be this impressive, and that date, you need to accomplish all these things, otherwise you're a failure. So to see that Eugene did not you know, accomplish certain things until later, you know, his middle-aged years. And I, I don't know, I take great comfort. I, I feel like I'm always perpetually a, a late bloomer. And so it's nice to know that, that there are people like him out there. And then the last thing is when I took a course with him in seminary on biblical spirituality, which is this vision of the spiritual life from scripture, at no point did he give us any advice. And that left me, a young man, very frustrated. And so at the end of the last class, at the very end, I thought this man is going to leave us without telling us anything. <laughs> I'm not going to let him. So I raised my hand. I said, Dr. Peterson, just one thing, one thing we can do. He thought about it and said, David, tomorrow read Psalm 1, the next day read Psalm 2, the day after that read Psalm 3, get to the end, start over. Thank you. Have a good night. And so then, of course, that did leave rather lifelong. This CBF podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we help lay leaders, clergy, and congregations find ways to thrive in the midst of change. Our experience in highly trained consultants and coaches don't prescribe one-size-fits-all solutions. Instead, we work alongside you and take your unique congregation and ministry context seriously. We believe the wisdom for thriving comes from the leadership of the Spirit. We help create the spaces for congregations to hear and recognize that God-given wisdom. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in ministry. You've got a, a new book out, Open and Afraid, The Psalms as a Guide to Life, inspired by the short film and certainly by Eugene Peterson. Uh, you invite readers uh, to a theologically poetic 
um, journey in the Psalms as an expression of the God of justice and grace and goodness and healing and power and refuge. You wrote, the Psalms offer a beginning, a middle, and an end. Instead of seemingly meaningless narrative, they present a rhythm of sounds instead of a cacophony of noise. They suggest an orderly world of metaphors instead of a disordered mess of thoughts and feelings. The Psalms reframe our sense of life. Obviously, you had an interest in the Psalms to develop a short film about them. Um, so what is it about the Psalms that stirred you to write about them? Well, if I'm speaking frankly, I, I never imagined that I would ever write a book on the Psalms. I, I have enough of a fear of God, of Scripture, uh, of, of the study of Scripture, of the scholarly study of Scripture, and the respect for my colleagues in biblical studies to not presume to write about the Psalms. But after the short film came out, I found myself in regular conversation with folks about the Psalms, and then I would find myself being invited to talk about the Psalms. So being a teacher by training, I would study up, make sure that I was sufficiently prepared to speak about what I was invited to speak about and to offer all the appropriate caveats for things I didn't know. And then enough of those happened that I began to acquire a little bit of a library. And once I looked at that library on my shelf, uh, something caught my attention. And that there was this really robust collection of resources on one side of the spectrum that were scholarly or academic. Fantastic. Just the kinds of things that we need as church leaders and lay people and, and fellow academics. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you had a wonderful collection of what I would call like daily devotionals. Uh, Eugene Peterson did one, uh, Tim Keller and Kathy's wife did one, and, and others have done them. They're wonderful. They're so accessible, and they're just what, exactly what so many people need to just have a, a regular diet of the Psalms. What was missing was a middle, a middle space that would take the good fruits of the work of scholars but offer them in an accessible form. And I knew I didn't want to write an introduction to the Psalms. I actually didn't feel skilled enough to write a proper introduction. And you have some really good introductions out there, and I have suggested resources at the back of my book. But there's, there's very little that was in the middle that would offer a meaty but accessible or a substantial but practical introduction to key themes in the Psalms. And so I began writing this book, hoping that somebody might read it, and at the end of reading my book, have a sense of what vision of life the Psalms might offer to us. If all you did, as it were, was read the Psalms, what kind of vision of a faithful life might result from it? Might you, what kind of human being might you become if you, if you only read the Psalms? I was also aware that Jesus had told the disciples that everything about him you know, had to be fulfilled from the law of Moses, the prophets, which we're all sort of aware that that's the case. But he also says the Psalms. And I think a lot of people aren't aware that that's the third thing he says. <laughs> Everything that was written about him in the Psalms has been fulfilled. And so that caught my attention. Well, if, the, if he is the fulfillment of the Psalms, then there's this, as it were, organic movement or organic thread that the life that the Psalms invite us to inhabit is now realized in Jesus's life himself. So to become like Jesus is to become, as it were, a psalmically shaped human being. But conversely, to read the Psalms 
is to be like Jesus, uh, for whom the Psalms were his prayer book because they were Israel's prayer book and the hymn book. So if we want to pray like Jesus and live like Jesus and so on and so forth, then let's read the Psalms. So that was, uh, I think, the original hope that I had for the book. As you may well know, you start writing and then you discover things along the way and you discover things at the very end that you had not imagined at the beginning. So the book, you know, becomes a, a different, hopefully a better thing at the end. And, and I, I do think it became a better thing than I had originally imagined. But it's a very satisfying experience. And I was only able to write it because I put my pastor hat on. I couldn't, I couldn't have write it as a scholar, I don't think, if I'm speaking honestly. But I could write it as a pastor to say, how might I write something that folks in the body of Christ might be able to read um, and find themselves inspired then to read the Psalms themselves? One of my favorite chapters in the book was about the anger found in the Psalms. And the psalmists mm -hmm. at times, um, if we're honest, they were pissed off at their fellow countrymen, mm -hmm. the circumstances they found themselves in, the injustices yeah. of their community, and most certainly at times um, at God. Um, you wrote, mm -hmm. an honest heart is, is honest to God about one's feelings. A hardened heart wants only to exact an eye for an eye. An honest heart entrusts one's enemies to God. A hardened heart demonizes one's enemies. Take us a little mm. deeper into the anger expressed in the Psalms. Well, if, if I may begin anecdotally, it is of the seven vices. It's the one that I have struggled the most my whole life. <clears throat> so I found myself comforted by the fact that I was not alone uh, in the world <laughs> struggling with anger issues, but then I found myself not just comforted, but reoriented in how I saw my anger, that anger wasn't exclusively or singularly a problematic thing. I, I think as a lot of Christians do believe that anger is only a vice. But what I found in the Psalms, and then of course I began reading Paul differently and Jesus differently and, and all the language about Yahweh differently, that the anger can be something that is a faithful expression to God, to others, to the world. And so I began to explore uh, this territory. Now, properly, I, I think you know scholars would call these the imprecatory or curse psalms. <clears throat> I call them the psalms of anger because I felt like that was the emotional register that these psalms were operating in. It was like sadness exponentially painfully felt. And so uh, if somebody cuts you off in traffic and that scares you, uh, there's sort of like the, you know, the lament, I guess, as it were, of the, 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 the fear of loss of life um, is so acute that you might find yourself yelling at them. <laughs> and that's, that's sort of this provocation, sort of this, this magnification of hurt or fear or loss. And so the psalmists are angry at God. And here's the wonderful thing, God can take it. And I think a lot of us, including myself, are raised in church traditions where you, there are certain ways you don't speak to God. Now, obviously, we don't want to be disrespectful. We don't want to be dishonoring. We don't want to be flippant. But the Psalms show us a way that we can be angry at God, perhaps in the way that a small child 
whose feelings are so deeply hurt or so afraid that they're, they become beside themselves and they grab your shirt and they wail at you because they're mad. They're, they're mad about things that they may not even be aware of, but they're holding on to you. And I feel like that's the image that I see played out in the Psalms. The Psalmists are holding on, as it were, to God's lapels, getting in God's face in the way that we see Jacob wrestling, perhaps, and saying, things are not right in my life, in the world, and I need you to make it right. Or as Eugene Peterson puts it, the Psalms of anger are, you know, these ways that provide us means to cuss without cussing. It's, I think, the same idea. And there are many things in the world that make us angry, and the Psalms say, you're right to feel angry about those things in our families, our family histories, things that have happened. You're right to be angry, but there is a way to be faithfully angry. And that doesn't mean that you're buttoned up. Uh, you don't you don't resort to stiff upper lips or, or resort only to polite conversation. There is a way to be raw and um, and, you know, deeply viscerally expressive. But at the end of the day, all this anger must take place before the face of God. All our cursings and imprecations must take place in the presence of God. And one of the arguments that I make in, in the book is the Psalms are this devotional and liturgical antidote to our primordial sin. So the consequences of Adam and Eve's rebellion is to hide and run from God and to shut out and to shut down from one another, then the Psalms are a gift from God to help us to be open and unafraid, to be truly vulnerable. And that's terrifying. Most of us don't want to do it in the places that are most painful to us, but the Psalms are this gift, this gentle gift to help us to be, in this case, angry uh, faithfully uh, before God and before others, and it's always in the company of others. Ultimately, maybe you experience it sort of momentary, you know, solitude. But ultimately, our anger is to be expressed and shared in the community. Otherwise, it's it's too much for us. We we, we can't bear it or, or overwhelms us. So those are the things I, I, I write about in, in that chapter on the Psalms of anger. Well, you said something earlier that uh, kind of. Uh, perked up in my mind. And and that is, uh, you know, I feel like the dominant Christian tradition in America doesn't teach and empower people to express their feelings towards God in an honest mm. way. Mm. And I wonder, you know, if, if you've kind of formulated an opinion or perspective into why that is and, uh, and why that seems so contrary to what we see expressed in the Psalms. Well, gosh, um, the answer is probably many reasons. Um, let's see what, what comes to mind. If we, if we are raised in a culture where boys don't cry and to be a strong man is to not show emotion or feelings or to be vulnerable in that way, then, well, and I, I do think that's rather toxic and terrible. Um, perhaps I would say even it's evil because of how damaging it is. Then no, you know, we're not going to. So that's one thing. Um, a second would be that when you're in the presence of the idea that when you're in the presence of God, you must behave, you know, seen, but not heard. And I think a lot of people, um, have that mentality. I think maybe others 
there's the idea that when I'm in the presence of God, it's as if I'm in the presence of Queen Elizabeth, the second or first. And when you're in the presence of, of royalty, you behave yourself. You bow, you curtsy, <laughs> you uh, are proper uh, and decent, as it were. And so that's what it's like to be in God's presence. And so when we come and we gather as the people of God, be that way. Um, and not any other way. Uh, I think many of us are raised in a, an American culture that doesn't know what to do with our feelings. So they are either suppressed or they're indulged. And so Christians find themselves reacting, you know, maybe to those and find themselves sort of confused about what is the proper expression of feelings. Um, I think maybe a lot of folks find themselves embarrassed by those public displays of emotion because their parents were and their parents were and their parents behind them. Um, there's still a stigma about mental health. There's a stigma in many circles about uh, going to see a therapist. Um, I remember in 1993 <laughs> uh, thinking to myself, uh, maybe I should go see a therapist, but I'm embarrassed. And I think only people who are really, truly screwed up go to therapy. Um, and then uh, I found myself desperate enough. <laughs> I went and I thought after going to a counselor for many years, everybody should do this. It's just like going to a doctor. But I think it's a combination of things. And um, if it's not modeled for you, then it's very difficult for you to inhabit that space in a way that's life-giving and helpful. And so we shy away from it. So, you know, the whole range, I mean, I'll, I'll say this. Uh, I remember speaking to a group of, of mostly Presbyterian um, pastors, male. Um, and it was, it was a wonderful group of men, but um, I don't know how to say this, maybe sort of alpha male ish, um, strong, robust. <laughs> and, um, and I, I was speaking to them on the Psalms over the course of retreat. And on the way to the retreat center, my, I, I got a phone call from my parents that my oldest sister was in a near fatal car accident. And she was in the ICU and she remained there for five weeks. And it, it was traumatizing for all of us. I ended up staying the night at the retreat center and doing two talks. And then I, I, I left in order to be with the rest of my family. But I began my first talk on the Psalms of Lament, and I thought to myself, I told myself, don't be emotional. Just get to this. you got a lot of stuff going on beneath the service. Just present the material, get to the end, and then let yourself feel, you know, when you're driving. I opened my mouth, <laughs> and the first thing that comes out of my mouth is this ball. I just start bawling because just sort of the grief of it all, the fear of it all. And I just was crying, I guess, so deeply that I had to hold on to the lectern and lean over. And my first thought was, I'm not embarrassed to cry in front of these men. I really am not, because I've already dealt with that issue years ago. But I did feel that they were embarrassed for me. Now, it also happened to be the case that when I was leaving, one of the pastors came up to me and said, you know, my congregation in Brooklyn, New York, there are a lot of melancholy artists. They love to you know, hang out with the Psalms of Lament business, but they really struggle with the Psalms of Praise. They struggle to be truly 
joyful in a, uh, a self-abandoned way. And, and I mentioned this to them. And that caught my attention too, that it's like, yeah, I can see how some of our congregational cultures might struggle on all ends, you know, either expressive uh, lament, expressive joy, and who, only God knows how we do expressive anger <laughs> in a helpful way in congregational context. But I think it's just, it's, it's a struggle we all feel. And I, I certainly don't, presume that this is easy for us to do or for me to do, or I don't always feel comfortable. I don't presume to know how pastors and worship leaders are to lead their congregations. I, I don't presume to tell them do X, Y, Z, and it would result. But I do think the Psalms provide us the kind of model and helps to get us in that direction. And I think, and I would hope that we would want to go in that direction, because if we don't, then people will find other ways to deal with the pain in their hearts. And unfortunately, regrettably, we may deal with it in very self-destructive or other destructive ways. We often read the Psalms as uh, the lone poem of an individual. Um, yet you argue that Psalms invite us to risk the love of God and neighbor and the world that surrounds us with reassurance that we do not venture this risk alone. We venture it together with an extraordinary company of fellow pilgrims across the ages. Um, how do we read the Psalms together as a journey? Well, you know, I, I have twin arguments in the book. The first is that the, my Psalm, my chapter on the Psalms of Honesty is a way to say that, that make the most of the Psalms. To get the most out of the Psalms, we must be willing to be brutally honest or completely vulnerable. But the twin part of the argument is in the second chapter on the Psalms of Community, that we can't be honest, we can't be vulnerable, and we can't do what the Psalms are inviting us to do without a community. The Psalms don't allow us really to do it without. And then they show us. They're not just telling us, they're showing us. So Psalm 1, I argue, and I'm not alone in this, is the Psalm of the individual, the faithful individual. Psalm 2 is the Psalm of the faithful community. They, neither of those psalms have a superscription. Neither of them have a little heading at the top saying for this or for that or by this person or group. So scholars say these are like the little keys, the two keys that open up the meaning of the Psalter. And so you go through the rest of the Psalter and you see this language of the assembly or the faithful or the congregation or the people or friends repeated all throughout as a way to say that our faith is fundamentally a communal one and a communally rendered one. So for example, Psalm 23, it seems on the surface that it is truly and only a Psalm of the individual. And that's why a lot of folks in the West, a lot of folks in, in America love it because it's this my personal story of the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You read the Psalms uh, often enough, back to, you know, back to back, cover to cover, as it were, and you begin to see that, in fact, the Psalms are all in dialogue with each other. So Psalm 4 and 5, for example, are the Psalm of evening and morning, echoing the rhythm of, of, of Genesis. Psalm 23 is, in fact, in a dialogue with Psalm 22 and 24. And both Psalm 22 and 24 are, uh, are set within these communal settings. Psalm 22 in a more maybe intimate kind of setting, Psalm 24 in a more kind of cosmic, this you know, large setting of creation and history. 
And so as if, as if to say, please don't mistake, be mistaken or don't, don't think that Psalm 23 is this exclusive narrative of the individual. Now, it is a narrative of an individual for a good reason, that in ancient Near Eastern societies, the language of God as shepherd was largely a, a plural language. The Lord is our shepherd. So I think there's, there's a good reason why the psalmist puts it in the first person, the Lord is my shepherd, as a way to tell people at that time that you're not, you're not a, a school of fish. You're not this collectivist identity. Each of you matters to the Lord who is your shepherd. But they themselves in reading this would have read Psalm 22 and then Psalm 24 to say, the Lord is my shepherd in the context of the Lord being our shepherd. And so the Psalms all throughout, even getting to the very end, sort of this larger context of the community of all of creation of heaven and earth, are inviting us to inhabit and to read and to sing and to pray these Psalms together. And, and, you know, we can, some traditions do a wonderful job of reading them together as a, a part of their liturgies, their Sunday liturgies. But I would say go beyond that and, and read and pray and sing and memorize the Psalms as, as families and small groups and housemates and, and, and allow yourself <clears throat> to bear witness to one another of the work of God in your life through the Psalms in the same way perhaps as the Psalms are themselves an entire book of testimonies. The last thing I'll say about it is at the end of every chapter, I have a list of questions and exercises in light of the theme that I explore as a way to make it the most immediately accessible and practical for a community or small group or church staff or whatever ministry uh, group to be able to discuss together, you know, for example, in the Psalms of Lament or Psalms of Sadness, Hey, what's hard for you? What's easy for you to be sad about or upset about? What's hard for you to be sad or upset about? And, you know, these aren't sometimes easy questions, but my hope is that, you know, communities of, you know, whether two people or 200 would take advantage of them as a way to say, hey, let's let's jump into the deep end of the Psalms and see what we find together. And I, I think if people do that, I, I think they'll just discover something that Christians have discovered for 2,000 years, and that is, that they will discover Christ himself in their midst, inviting them to be his body in the world. I guess my last question related to the book, because ultimately we want people to go and buy and read it. Um, do you reread the forward by Eugene Peterson and the afterward by Bono on a daily basis? <laughs> no, actually I get pretty shy about those things. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm profoundly grateful that, you know, it was one of the last things Eugene wrote before he passed away. It was a, a huge gift to me. And the fact that Bono wrote the afterward is basically a one of a kind. Uh, he hasn't done it for anybody. And I was told by some of those handlers, don't ever ask him again. <laughs> like, okay, I, I, Captain. Now, he never says that. He is so kind and generous. But there was basically like, you know, uh, consider yourself lucky peon. <laughs> like I do, actually, I do. Um, but I, you know, we know that Bono loves the Psalms, and you know, all throughout his career, he's written about it. Yeah, one of their tours, they released leaflets of excerpts from the Psalms on everybody, and you know, the stadiums and auditoriums where they performed. And so, if if the afterward gets those on the margins of faith or margins of church or beyond, you know, um, to say, oh, wow, the Psalms, that's interesting. 
and they would read this book and then go read the Psalms. That would make me happy. Um, but I, 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 you know, I don't know. I, I guess I get a little bit sheepish about it uh, because it does feel like such an unusual thing. But at the same time, I am grateful. And um, if it gets people to to read the book, then then that's great. Because I think what they both want, I mean, Eugene and Glory, <laughs> is for people to read the Psalms. So please read my book. Yes. But really, that it would help you read the Psalms and help you read the Psalms um, carefully and thoughtfully, which is why I have chapters on, you know, what what's going on with the poetry and how do they do prayer and Here's a little bit of a history of it. And then, you know, here's some major themes like life and death and justice and enemies and nations and creation. Jump in, make the most of it, enjoy it, savor it. Uh, because I want you to really discover what uh, was the heartbeat of Jesus' own life and the early church's, you know, prayer life. And, and, and what was for Eugene and certainly still for today, for, for, for Bono and for, for many others. So that's my hope. Uh, yes, please buy my book. Yeah, that would make me happy. But buy my book so that it gets you going into the Psalms. It gets you excited to read the Psalms. That would make me even more happy. So I'm, I'm going to take that as a yes, you do read the the, <laughs> the forward and the afterward. As a... <laughs> only ads. It's only where I'm feeling especially down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, speaking of Bono and Psalms, of course, the one of my favorite songs, 40, is based on Psalm 40, which was on mm. the War album in 1983. But I know you didn't listen to that album, so. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I, I am going to tell you one thing, and it's only because I love you with the love of Jesus, and I would love to increase your envy, but but not really. Um, but I'm going to tell you this because it might tickle you, uh, because it tickled, well, I don't know. Maybe tickle is not the right word. Um, it was one of those moments like, good God, I have arrived. Um, so. Uh, it was the Songs of Experience, I think, tour that was uh, 2015. Is that right? Because Experience and then Innocence. Sometimes get those because they were back-to-back tours. Do you remember what? what yeah, uh, you get it. Mm-hmm. Experience. Okay. So I heard them in concert. This is my first concert. So I'm embarrassed to say it was my first concert. This is 2000, 2000, 2000 yeah, 15, um, in Boston. And... Um, we were there on the floor. My wife and I were, were just pinching each other. This is amazing. This is one of the, you know, it's, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's worshipful. It's, it's expansive and, and just spectacular in every sense of that term. He gets to the end, uh, or they get to the end, and, uh, you know, a couple encores, and then the last encore, and then everybody's shouting, which is largely a bunch of middle-aged men. <laughs> and, uh, and they're all shouting, 40. And I know the song, so I start shouting with him because I think that's that's an it is an awesome song. And so it goes quiet, and then the band starts playing, you know, that little you know first part of it, and everybody's getting chills. And the Mona leaves, leans into the microphone, and says, "David, David Taylor, this is for you." And I didn't realize what was happening because I was just sort of caught up in the enthusiasm at all. And my wife shakes me. She's like, he's talking about you. <laughs> and I just put my fist in the air and say, I'm a little guy, but he said my name. <laughs> so that was kind of my, pretty much I could die after that. I'm, I'm good to go. I don't need anything else. 
Well, uh, for our audience, uh, hopefully it's not in memoriam uh, when I hunt David down for him you know, out of jealousy. Uh, all jokes aside, if you want to stay connected with David, follow his work at uh, BremenCenter.com. Uh, follow him on Twitter. And of course, go out and purchase Open and Unafraid wherever books are sold. Uh, David, thank you for inviting us to open up space oh. in our hearts to give and to receive the steadfast love of God. Mm, thank you so much. Uh, it was a gift to be a part of this conversation. Thank you. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing I don't think we've mentioned on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff.